Welcome back to Cthulhu Light Show, your one-stop shop for nerd news you've already heard and opinions you don't need. On today's episode, we're doing something that I am very excited about. We planned it out from the beginning. We are finally going to touch on H.P. Lovecraft. Specifically, the Call of Cthulhu is kind of the namesake for our podcast. This is entry three of Cthulhu Horror Show. I am Brian. And I am Dakota. And by God, we've done it. Have we? Yeah, we've gone. We we did it. We finally hit Lovecraft Country. Oh, wait. Well, we didn't review Lovecraft Country. This is the old. Sorry, this is the old country. There's the. We were gonna review Lovecraft Country, and that was one of those we don't wanna kinds of things. Yeah, this so... one of those weeks where I didn't feel like doing anything. I but hear it's yes. good. Yeah, I have as well. This episode we've had planned pretty much since the beginning. You know, this is not intended to be a Lovecraft podcast, but we felt that, you know, if we're going to name it after Cthulhu, we need to at least infuse some Lovecraft into it every once in a while. Dakota, what is your history with the works of H.P. Lovecraft and then just kind of like Lovecraft in horror in general? Now, this is going to be a weird thing coming from a guy who named his podcast after the Lovecraft mythos. I've never been a huge Lovecraft guy. Like, I I, I know of the works. I Honestly, this is the first time reading Call of Cthulhu for me, or mm. I had it read to me. I, I'll admit, I'm a cuck and a fraud. I, I, I listen to an audiobook. Um, didn't you read At the Mountains of Madness back in high school? Oh my god, you're right. That, yeah, I, I yeah. So, all, all I've read the other mountains of madness before and that's a, this. That's a hell of a story to start with, because it's one of his longest works. Um, in the edition yeah. I have, it's like a full 60 pages, and it's widely considered one of the best, but it is extremely dense. Yeah, um, my, my uncle really threw me in the deep end. Yeah. It's it's good, but it's kind of impenetrable compared to, like it's it's not the gateway story I would pick for Lovecraft. Ironically enough, Call of Cthulhu isn't really either. It is a lot of people's gateway just because like they want to know about Cthulhu, but I don't f- personally think this is always the best entry point for people. But I would also say, Dakota, I don't actually think your experience with Lovecraft is that unusual. I feel like Lovecraft has this kind of weird position in pop culture where Lovecraftian horror and various symbols from Lovecraft's work, like Cthulhu, um, Yogg-Sothoth, the Deep Ones, etc., this stuff has kind of penetrated into the larger pop culture and become very well-known and beloved, oftentimes by people who have never read a single Lovecraft story. Like, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is very popular, and a lot of the people who play it and consider themselves, like, avid Lovecraft fans have never actually picked up any of Lovecraft's works. Um, And I don't say that to be, like, a gatekeeper. I, you know, I don't blame anybody who doesn't enjoy reading Lovecraft stuff, because it's very dense. Um, Yeah, like, before... 
uh, I was gonna make a joke about gatekeeping actually, because before I sat down and listened to Call of Cthulhu and like I read amounts of madness, like, I, and I forgot about that. I, I blocked a lot of shit out from high school. Um, yeah, Lovecraft's work, yeah, we really did for the best. Lovecraft's work is super, super dense. Like mm-hmm. he explains every detail. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into his prose in a little bit. Um, I I gotta say I did listen to I also listened to this at work, so it was real start mm-hmm. and stop. So, which I yeah. think just right off the top that that his over explanation of everything kind of benefits in that specific scenario. If you're listening mm. to his his works while you're at work, mm. well, the um, his that was a big battle he had with editors later in his life was. He was progressively writing longer and longer stories and he kind of resented because for him, like his writing was about art first and money second. And he did not like his stories being broken up to be serialized in magazines. Um, Some of his earlier works were like Call of Cthulhu, I believe was serialized. I'm pretty sure. Um, Hence why it's broken into three sections. Um, but later works like At the Mountains of Madness, he could not get published for the life of him because editors insisted on splitting it up, but they felt there was no good places to break up the story, and Lovecraft refused to rewrite it to, like, accommodate for that format. So, like, that, that, I, I think a lot of people probably would benefit from having um gaps in the story where you can take a break lovecraft was not himself a fan of that that model i kind of picked up on that yeah yeah not Um, one for brevity is hp lovecraft no no he is not so i guess i should get into my my history with lovecraft a little bit um i have a fairly extensive history with reading and studying Lovecraft's work. Although my initial exposure to Lovecraft with like with most people was through something that had nothing to do with Lovecraft and that was Bloodborne. Bloodborne and then later the works of Jeff Vandermeer convinced me to seek out more weird horror, more Lovecraftian horror, and eventually it did just inevitably lead me to Lovecraft. And um I I'd like to think I know a fair bit on the subject matter. Like, I don't want to, like, toot my own horn. There are definitely people who know a lot more about Lovecraft than me, and um, I haven't even read all of his work in its entirety, although I've read most of it. Fake Um, Lovecraft fan. But uh, Lovecraft was the basis for my undergrad thesis, and it did win the award for Best Thesis of the Year. Ooh. Um, And again, I... I, I, uh, that's just kind of my justification if I speak a little more authoritatively on the matter. You know, I'm not a, a Lovecraft biographer or anything, but I did study him extensively and um, devote months of effort into understanding uh, him and his work. So, yeah, I've read a lot of Lovecraft stuff. I'm, I am missing some pretty key stuff that I'd like to go back and read. Like, I've never read anything from his Dream Cycle, for instance, one, like, smash hit, like, beloved Lovecraft story that I've actually never read is Rats in the Walls, which I'm sure is, like, blasphemy to a lot of Lovecraft fans. 
how could you? Yeah, that's that's generally lauded as one of his best, like, one of his best works outside of the Cthulhu mythos. Which, by the way, not everything he wrote was in the Cthulhu mythos. There's usually his works divided into three or four different categories. Um, but anyway. Um, so yeah, we have pretty varied experiences with Lovecraft. I've I've only been reading Lovecraft for a few years. Like it's it's not like a lifelong love of mine or anything. But I am very familiar with the stuff that I have read. And I got a, a small confession. I do have very mixed feelings about Lovecraft, not just as a person, but as a writer. And we'll get into how Lovecraft was as a person, but as a writer, I often find his works to be very gripping on like a conceptual level, but I usually do not really care for the execution of them. I think the ideas, the themes, the imagery that he presents in these stories are really fascinating, but his prose can be so wordy and he has such a passive writing style that I do often find his works to be kind of a slog. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely see that. Like, just Call of Cthulhu is, I don't know, what, like, now 40 pages, maybe? I don't even know if it's that long. It's it's fairly short by the standards of his, like, popular work, I feel like. It sure feels a hell of a lot longer, though. Oh, yeah. Like, I think it's shy of, like, 30 pages, but it is so dense that it it is an effort for me to get through it. Um, that's partly because I've read it many times, and, uh, you know, I reread it last night before this recording, and I listened to the audiobook today to see how how the difference felt. And I gotta say, I do think that at least this story felt more accessible through audiobook. Because... When you're reading a lot, like, it feels, like I said, like an ordeal to get through some of these, like, massive bloated sentences. When you're listening to it, it all feels like it kind of just blends together a lot better. Probably partly depends on the narrator, but I have mixed feelings. Lovecraft's work is not the kind of stuff I would typically pick up just for entertainment value. You know, I... I, part of the reason I focused on this stuff for my, my undergrad thesis was because I think it's really interesting to study and scrutinize and, and discuss, but it's not my idea of a fun Saturday night, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't imagine people want to sit down, curl up with a nice hot cup of cocoa, and read some Dagon. Oh, there's people who absolutely do. Like, there, there are people who will reread, like, At the Mountains of Madness on, like, a yearly basis, and I'm like, holy shit, how? Um, Why? <laughs> yeah, that I, that story I'm not as fond of as a lot of fans of, of the Cthulhu Mythos are. I think it has its merits, but I think it could stand to be literally cut in half, size-wise. It's twice as long as it needs to be, in my opinion. You're probably right, I... I haven't read it in a few years. I'll have to read it again at some point. My personal favorite Lovecraft story, which maybe we'll do, like, I don't know, maybe next year, is uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth. It is 
it's probably got the most active protagonist Lovecraft ever wrote. Um, this is the fish people, right? Yes. Uh, okay. and that's the Hell thing. yeah. I also, I also love the setting. Now, before we get much further, we do need to issue a big fat disclaimer, um, oh. which is about <laughs> the racism. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Lovecraft was a big fat racist. I wouldn't call um, him fat. Well, he was extremely slim. He was a real scrawny racist. <laughs> he was starving a lot of his life, yeah. Um, but my point is, he was extremely racist, even by the standards of the time. He was an avid supporter of the Nazi party. He supported Adolf Hitler, etc. Yes, this was before the horrors of the Holocaust were revealed, and... Yes, like a, a a decent chunk of Americans did also admire Hitler and the Nazi Party, but that doesn't make it okay. Discourse about Lovecraft is so hard to get into because <laughs> I can only imagine people either relentlessly hammer on fans for enjoying the work and insinuate that liking Lovecraft's work inherently makes you as racist as Lovecraft. And then on the other hand, fans who are sick of being told that will insist that Lovecraft either was not racist or that his racism is a non-issue and we should just stop talking about it. All I want to say is just that no, being a fan of the Cthulhu mythos uh, and Lovecraft's body of work does not make you a racist. Phew. But I I do think that the racism is an important issue and it needs to be addressed and scrutinized or it will fester. I mean, it is like a documented truth that certain members of certain alt-right groups do sometimes flock to Lovecraft's writing. Um, oh God, really? Yeah. I mean, it has happened. And again, that is the that is such a small minority of his fans. Fucking Proud Boys uh, over Innsmouth. I can't believe it. That's the only politically charged joke I'm making this episode, hopefully. I'm just saying I have no interest in vilifying fans of Lovecraft. I do think the racism is an important issue, but more qualified people than me have already talked about it a ton. So if that's a discourse you're interested in exploring seek it out yourself because we're just here to basically review call of cthulhu looking at it as a story yes not as a reflection of the author yeah i mean it's the racism thing's gonna come up but i well yeah uh, yeah it is because this story has a lot of very explicit racism in it anyway i'm gonna stop talking for a little bit dakota i want to know your honest thoughts and feelings about the call of cthulhu all right uh call of cthulhu it's it's more complicated than you'd think it would be to talk about it like we've said before it's a very dense book it's a very it's very packed a lot of things happen in a short amount of time um i'll I'll start with the stuff i like like the, the the setting like the the descriptions, the world building that Lovecraft goes on, it, it it's some ah oh, goddamn, it's some beautiful, vivid, really sharp, detailed imagery. Like it's 
Do you know how, like, you know, reading Rainbow, you know, books take you on an adventure or whatever. Like, I went on a fucking cosmic horror adventure listening <laughs> listening to some guy read Call of Cthulhu while I deliver pizzas. The reading Rainbow's gonna give me nightmares. <laughs> yeah, it turns out the pot of gold at the end of, uh, the end of the Rainbow was, uh, wasn't knowledge. It was, well, it's forbidden knowledge, I guess. It was a mass of writhing feelers. Yeah, yeah, like a cuttlefish on a on a, on a reptile's body. This is a good book. It's it, it's a lot to break down. Um, probably requires multiple reads, listens, whatever. I loved it. it it's right up my alley, especially with the audiobook version. It kind of plays out the one I found on YouTube. Kind of plays out almost like a radio drama, which. As we heard, I'm kind of a radio drama guy. That kind of paints my view my view in a, I guess, more positive overall light. Um, because not a perfect story by any means. Like it's no, it's super wordy. It's I don't want to say contrived because it's it's literally some of the first work of its of its genre. Yeah, it's um, the opposite of contrived. Yeah. yeah, it literally cannot be contrived. It, it invented an entire new genre of fiction, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, you can fact check me on that if you want, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Like, Lovecraftian horror is a subgenre, but it's like a subgenre of the weird, which is a subgenre of horror. Yeah, capital um, W, capital F, weird fiction. Yes. Like, Lovecraft was often called the father of the weird, but he himself thought that he was following in the footsteps of older creators like Poe and Algernon Blackwood and people like that. And he did borrow a lot of influences from a lot of other people. Like, a guy named Lord Dunsany, or Dunsany, I've also heard it said. Like, he was a massive influence to Lovecraft because... Lovecraft, as a kid, was really enamored with Greek and Roman mythology. He loved learning about these pantheons of gods, and it kind of inspired his atheism because he thought Christianity was fucking boring by comparison. <laughs> and so it's what happened to me in high school. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but uh, Dunsany's whole thing was he created this fictional pantheon of his own gods, and that was very fascinating to Lovecraft at a certain age, and that's why the Cthulhu mythos is almost like an anti-mythology. Um, there's not really a structured pantheon to it, but I do think various members of it can be seen as stand-ins for tropes of various mythologies or religions. Like, Azathoth is a twisted, cracked mirror version of a creator deity, Cthulhu is almost like a weird, topsy-turvy version of Christ, or reinterpretation of Christ. Yogg-Sothoth impregnating somebody in Dunmachor is very similar to, like, Mary and the Virgin Birth. So, like, yeah, he... I would have said... He had influences, but I would definitely say this. they come together to make something wholly unique in this story. Right, yeah. And it, interestingly, you draw that, that the... The Immaculate Conception, you draw that parallel. Because I would have I would have wished Greek mythology. That just sounds like Zeus on a Friday night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's also completely fair. I think either you know, either um 
inter- like either interpretation or comparison works just as well. Yeah, it, um, it's like I, I was a I, I was big on like Greek mythology in, in high school. Like I was one of those nerds. I read Percy Jackson shit. So like, yeah, we all were. There, it's good stories. So that yeah. that's where my mind goes on that. Yeah, yeah, and Zeus was a freak with a Q U E. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's putting it mildly. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I mean, Call of Cthulhu, there are aspects of it I really enjoy. Again, mostly conceptual. Was there anything about the story that particularly surprised you? Um, especially because, like, Call of Cthulhu is kind of a weird story where, like, er- everybody knows Cthulhu through, like, cultural osmosis. Yeah. But so few people actually know the details of the story. Um, I think particularly people are really shocked to discover that Cthulhu's barely in it. Like, was there any stuff like that that really surprised you? It's like a monster movie. It only shows up the last third. It's bullshit. <laughs> Not even the last third. It's like, you know, like two pages of this 25, 30 page story. They're two fantastic pages, though. I'll give them that. Yes. That That is something I planned on talking about, is that I feel like this is a consistent trend in Lovecraft's work, at least for me, is that a lot of the story will be kind of a slog, kind of average at best, and then there's always two or three pages, usually the last two or three, that are just like complete, utter brilliance. Yeah, that, that's always what I've heard when I've like... I've, you know, looked at conversations online or whatever, talking to my uncle or anything about, like, mm-hmm. the Lovecraft stuff, like, people keep saying, you really gotta push through, which, mm-hmm. you know, we've taken that stance before on different stuff, like... Yeah, various media. Yeah, it's... It, the, the slow burn is very effective when done well. Um, mm-hmm. Lovecraft, I don't think, had that slow burn down just yet. I'm inclined to agree with you, yeah. Because the first fucking three, like, the first, the first, like, 80% of the book is a lot of just flashback and narrative device and catching you up to this world that obviously Lovecraft has crafted, in his own mind at least, outside of the, the confines of the story itself. Yeah. Yeah, the structure of the story is possibly my biggest criticism of it. We will get to that. But yeah, um, sorry, did you ever answer, like, stuff that surprised you? Uh, I don't think I did, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I I started to, but I got distracted or something. Um, no, we started talking about Cthulhu. He's barely in it. That kind of bummed me out, but Mm. whatever. Just uh, the fact that we pour over not one, but two manuscripts. And I, I get that they're leaving these note trails. It all ties together at the end. Like, all the, all this shit mm-hmm. that we're complaining about, it all ends up making sense at the end. But it's just that fight all the way to the end where things all come together in, in a sense. Because, like, weird fiction doesn't always come to a conclusive, like, happy ending. Yeah, this is almost like a, and we're gonna, it's unavoidable, we're gonna be talking about the narrative structure. It's like a kind of attempt at, like, ye old found footage. Um, (laughs) It's 
but it's also got like a degree of distance. Like this could have been a, an epistolary novel or an epistolary story. Do you know what that is, Dakota? I know. That's a an epistolary story is a story that's told through letters, diary entries, legal documents, etc. Like passing oh, off a... fictional documents as real world accounts and patching together a narrative out of them. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Dracula is an epistolary novel. Uh, I understand Lovecraft was a pretty big fan of it, and to a certain extent, that probably inspired the format of this story. But there's like this degree of separation where you're not actually getting to read any of the scattered reports. The protagonist or the narrator has read all of the reports and is now writing his report of reading the report. Yeah, it's um, all paperwork. It's yeah. Like if if I can jump real far ahead, something that mm-hmm. just came to me as we were talking, like Call of Cthulhu boiled down to its bare essentials is like 90% fluff and filler and then like an action movie scene and then a to be yes. continued. It's yes, it's a very disjointed is, narrative. It it it's it's it it, very disjointed. It's weird and not in like a like a good like weird fiction weird way. It's weird in like a kind of hard to read <laughs> kind of way. <laughs> yeah. It is very disjointed. Well, one of the kind of interesting... I mean, obviously spoilers for this fucking... God, almost 100-year-old story <laughs> Something, Yeah, real, real close to 100 um, years old. But the kind of the big reveal of the story, which I actually think is one of the more interesting parts of the story, is that the main action of the story actually already happened before the story began. So, like... This guy is following the breadcrumbs to discover why all of these strange phenomena are happening, and that's leading him closer and closer to learning about Cthulhu. And when he learns about Cthulhu, it's in the form of a, like, kind of, like, it's final declaration, I guess? Yeah, of, it's, a, it's, um, a, it's a memoir. It's... Yeah. I don't know. They're, they're super detailed notes is the best way yeah. to... It's a super detailed recollection of what happened to these guys. Yeah, well, it's basically, like, all I'm saying is, like, he follows all these notes, he interviews all these people, and at the end, he comes to learn about Cthulhu by finding these notes from a sailor who's like, hey, I met Cthulhu months ago, it was fucked up, now I'm dead. (laughs) Pretty wild TBH. The um the kind of like traumatic event was already long gone when the protagonist even became passingly aware of this whole phenomenon ever have happened. Um, so the narrative is very disjointed. The chronology of it is very very weird, and I'm generally not a very big fan of that. I guess I guess we should do like a brief plot summary because a lot of people really aren't that familiar with Call of Cthulhu. Okay, sweet. I knew I had the Wikipedia page pulled up for a reason. <laughs> I mean, I we could also just do it off the top of our heads. We both read it yesterday. Yeah, it, uh, I could also just use my memory for once. Basically, a guy's great uncle, who I believe was a respected archaeologist? Alright, I, I got you right here. So, the story kicks off with Francis Wayland Thurston recounting yes. his discovery of notes from his great uncle, 
Professor George Angel, who's yes. a professor of Semitic languages at Brown University. Yes. And that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> because if I talk okay. anymore, if I talk anymore, I'm g- <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna mention the uh, the nautical looking men. Oh no, we're <laughs> not going there. It's right there. It's it's right at the beginning. It is, yeah, yeah. The racism is on like page one or two. It's um, it's, it's incredible. There's no, and it only gets worse. <laughs> nautical looking gentleman is is a nice way of putting it. It's an extreme censorship of what is actually said. But anyway, um. But yeah, so this guy's great uncle was a respected academic, and he has died, and the protagonist is his only, like, his closest living descendant, so he's the executor of the estate, and he is basically going through his uncle's uh, notes and belongings, and he stumbles upon this bas-relief, which is like a kind of clay sculpture, sort of. And there's an image of Cthulhu, and there's some strange hieroglyphs, and he jumps down this rabbit hole and discovers that his uncle had, not long before his death, been conferring with this college student who was a sculptor who created this bas-relief from these horrific visions he was having in his dreams. And for weeks, he was interviewing this kid and, you know, taking down notes about all these dreams he was having, and he was dreaming of this monolithic ancient sunken city and then one night the dreams reached like a peaked fervor and then they stopped and then there's later revelation that the reason he took the boy's case was because he recognized cthulhu's image from previously having been given an idol that looked like cthulhu by a police investigator who was tracking down a strange cult in louisiana uh, the cult is also described in extremely racist terms. Yeah, um, Louisiana swamp priests. Yes, is the uh, best way to describe them. Also, very generous compared to how he actually says it. And uh, basically, this police chief found a fuckload of cultists killing people and dancing around the idol in the swamp, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they get information from one of the cultists they take prisoner, and then later, the uncle dies. Um, killed by, presumably, a cultist, who is described in racist terms. Then eventually the protagonist discovers this voyage of... Um, was it from Norway? Yeah, they came out of... Oh, no, I lied. Uh, the... Voyage came out of uh, New Zealand, but there was a really? Norwegian sailor on there. That, okay. Yeah, okay, Johansson. Okay. Johansson is Norwegian. Okay, gotcha. Basically, the ship was like attacked by angry, racist, racially described. I don't know, uh, cultists who attacked the ship. Uh, my point is the way they're described is offensive. The um, the uh, white guys that Lovecraft wants you to root for board their ship and fucking kill all of them and uh, commandeer it's... their vessel. And then they accidentally discover the sunken city of Rillier. They accidentally unleash Cthulhu. A bunch of them die. Johansson gets home and is killed by a cultist later. My point in recapping this entire thing is that the chronology is all messed up. Like... We're told one piece of information, and then 
will be told. But to understand that, we need to go back to a further point that we didn't address yet. Like, the explanation for why the professor accepts this, like, to, to hear this young man talk about his dreams is because of this case with the detective years previously, but we don't know that until the second section of the story. And Johansson's whole ordeal complete gives context to everything that happens previously in the story. Um, so, like, everything's almost kind of told in reverse, honestly. Which is kind of fun. Yeah, it's... A little bit. I, I think... And this this is my my layman take. That you're gonna get a lot of layman takes today because I didn't I, I didn't go to college for uh, to study Lovecraft. Mood. Um, Neither did I. It just happened. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it, yeah. You, you don't come to Cthulhu. He comes sure to you. Do. I th- and this is my layman take. I think like the way the story is told to us, like we're supposed to be figuring things out along with Mister Thurston. Mm. Like when he figures things out, that's <gasps> that's when we figure yes. things out, and <gasps> we can piece it together as the story goes yeah. along. Can you see now why in our creepypasta episode I compared the formats of creepypasta to Lovecraft's work? Yeah, that makes complete sense now. Yeah, because it's it's framed as this like guy who pieced all this like disparate information together to recognize a horrible secret, and then like we the reader are doing the same thing with his writings. Which is interesting. Yeah, it's all it's all part of a cycle. Yeah. For me, one of the most fun moments that isn't Cthulhu Rising is when you are told about the dates of Johansson's voyage. And if you've been paying attention, you realize that those dates perfectly match up with the dates of people who are sensitive to Cthulhu's influence having these horrific nightmares. Um, yes, I, I, I noticed yes. that it, it all it lines clicks. up within the same like three week period. Yeah. And presumably the day when the boy, I forget his name, was having like seizures basically because the dreams were so intense. Presumably that was the moment Cthulhu rose and attacked Johansson. So I think that's that's like a fun consequence of the way the story is told. Um, overall, I find it takes something that's already very dense and makes it a little more jarring and confusing to get through. My real gripe with the format of the story is... The thing that really bothers me about the format is that there are many degrees of separation between the reader and the events of the story. There is a minimum of, like, one degree of separation at all times. Or, sorry, frankly, two degrees of separation, because... Almost everything the narrator is... Like, everything the narrator learns, he learns from other people and conveys to the reader indirectly. Like, there are no scenes. I don't think there's a single instance of... Well, I think maybe that... What's his name? Castro, the the prisoner. I think maybe you get some dialogue from him. But that's third-hand... A little bit, yeah. Third-hand dialogue. This, this is the thing, is it's like... One of the reasons I like Shadow Over Innsmouth is that everything happens in that story happens to the protagonist, and the reader experiences it with the protagonist. Um, In Call of Cthulhu, 
most of the story, the, the protagonist either learns the story through his uncle's writings or through Johansson's writings. Both characters are dead, so he can't actually ask them anything. And in the case of his uncle's writings, twice, or every time the that the uncle's you know information is being passed along, it is through extra degrees of separation. Whether it's the the sculptor having the dreams tells the uncle the story, the protagonist tells the story to the reader, or it's the uncle. Like, when we are learning about the uncle's story in the middle of section two, we then dip into the investigator's story from Louisiana. And then within the investigator's story, we start getting explanations from a specific prisoner that is captured. So that information is bouncing back from the prisoner to the investigator to the uncle to the protagonist to the reader. Yeah, it's all it's all like fourth hand knowledge. Yeah, that's that's like at one point, like Brian just explained, it's like offhand comments from someone written down by someone, kept by someone else, discovered by the main character, yes. experienced through us, whatever. It's yeah. it's all it, it's everything's already happened yeah. except for like you know the end of the book, obviously. Yeah. This is the the kind of passivity and the kind of disconnection between the reader and the plot is a pretty consistent problem I have with Lovecraft's work, but I think it's never worse than it is here um, because of the format of how the story is told, how it's framed. But that said, I do think I have to note that this was deliberate to some extent on Lovecraft's part. Like I said, he valued art above all else and for him it was artistically and thematically relevant that his characters be passive and that they not be able to influence the plot in any significant way and that the narrative be distant from the reader because first of all if something's truly incomprehensible then giving the reader direct access to the events of the story would deflate the incomprehensibility of it you know like when the narrator is reading Johansson's report and delivering it to us it's being filtered through two people's perspectives because Lovecraft can't describe something that's truly incomprehensible you know it's just not possible but then on the other hand Lovecraft also believed that like if these beings are so far above humanity then humanity should not be like, my human character should not be able to influence the story in any meaningful way because they are insects to these these beings. So he had a purpose for doing it. I still f- find that it makes the stories difficult for me to appreciate appreciate sometimes. Yeah, it, it, it's fun from, like, a writer's point of view. It's, 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 a, fr- it's a fun narrative device. Mm-hmm. It, it, it drives a certain kind of story, and I think... Uh, Lovecraft excels at that eventually, like I've said. this All, all I've heard is that Call of Cthulhu, while incredibly popular, is not usually not even like top five of his works. Yeah, um, I think it's worth the read. Again, on a conceptual level, it's got a lot of great stuff going for it. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's a little clunkier than a lot of his later work. Like, I think I think a lot of the works people more typically recommend are, like, specifically from the Cthulhu mythos, are, like, 
At the Mounds of Madness, Shadow Over Innsmouth, um, Color Out of Space, sometimes Done Much Horror, or um, uh, Whisper Out of Darkness, or, you know, etc., etc. Um, Call of Cthulhu, a lot of Lovecraft fans, I think, have kind of a nostalgic love for it, because a lot of them start with it, but I think it is pretty commonly acknowledged that it's got flaws, you know, and it's not the most accessible story in the world. I do want to dwell on the positives of this story a little more because I don't want to give the impression that I all out hate the Cthulhu mythos or this particular story. So like, Dakota, would you, would you have described yourself as a fan of Lovecraftian horror prior to reading this? Like, and I don't mean like, have you done the legwork to convince gatekeepers that you're a fan? I just mean like, has, does Lovecraftian horror appeal to you? Yeah, I I would I would definitely. You know, if you're like if you're asking, like, yeah, I'd definitely read more of his work. I do love the work that's come around, mm. like, Lovecraft's, uh, like, mythos. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've, I've never, I've never div- dove into like straight Lovecraft before. So, like, what, um, what aspects of Lovecraftian horror do you think appeal to you? Well, I it, this is just treading old water because, like we said before, it, it's it, it's the it kind of is the incomprehensibleness mm-hmm. of the terror. It, it is really is that out of our reach, out of our worldview, this completely mm-hmm. brand new thing that shakes up uh, society to the very foundation. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it, is it's like, um, there was a great quote I used in my thesis. Um, I think it was from Thacker. It was like the the kind of crux of Lovecraftian horror was this kind of doubt of like, either demons are not real, and I am insane for believing in them, or demons are real, and the world is not as I thought it was. So it's like, you you have two horrible options where it's like, the foundations of you yourself are unstable, or the foundation that your entire worldview and all of society is built on is unstable. And there is kind of this implication that, like, human gods are just run off from people's half-remembrances and reinterpretations of Cthulhu. And it recontextualizes humanity's place in the universe. It, um... It re- it re- it makes it forces you to reconsider just like the laws of physics, um, really yeah, is like this jumbled mess that does defy our understanding of physics, and Cthulhu does too to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, that's so, that that's that um, non Euclidean yeah. geometry that you hear so much about. Yeah, which side point? Um, my understanding is that non non Euclidean geometry is just any geometry that is not on a curve, or that yeah. Any, all non-Euclidean geometry is geometry that is on a curved surface, which, because the Earth is round, all geometry on Earth is non-Euclidean. Yeah, it's but, it's, uh, it's it's funny how people push that, how you, how, well, not people, well, Lovecraft started, and other people have pushed it because it's part of the mythos at this point. It's that, that's that otherworldly, that non-Euclidean geometry, which is just like, yeah. right. hourglasses and circle shapes and shit, spirals and stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, the, the incomprehensibility of it is certainly very interesting. 
I do think it's worth noting, though, that, like, I think a big part of the reason why Cthulhu is the Lovecraftian monster that, like, broke into the mainstream, partly it's just because it was one of the first, but um, it also just has a pretty clear and consistent image. Yeah, Um, very clear. Like, octopus head on giant scaly body with kind of bat wings or dragon wings. Yeah. Um, it's pretty pretty easy. It's not like Azathoth, who's like this ball of bubbling flesh and writhing tentacles and rolling eyes and stuff. It's much easier to like. It's inconceivable, but not too inconceivable. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it, yeah, it's inconceivable, but not impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like I said, that the the scene where Cthulhu rises to me is like brilliant. Um, I think somehow in that scene, all of the like ridiculous overblown flowery prose just feels right. Yeah, that like like that right there, if if I can cut in, like that's yeah, where that, that that's why when I told you like like we were talking before the podcast, like I said this it's wordy and you were like, Did you like it? I'm like, Yeah, it was great. It's it, it's it's all the like it's it's all the build it's 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 that slow burn, scary horror whatever we keep talking yeah. about it's I don't know it's, there's it's, a payoff yeah you, you get yeah. the sense that all of the stuff you were kind of slogging through has snowballed into something momentous you know yeah this is um, the big climax this is mm-hmm. you know Rulia has risen Cthulhu has awoken again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of a sudden it doesn't feel over overblown. It doesn't feel like a slog. It just feels like pieces of a puzzle fitting in place to like craft the perfect image. I, I also like like the way that he captures the incomprehensibility of Cthulhu, I think is very interesting. Because he has some like more obvious lines where he calls like Cthulhu like an eldritch contradiction of something 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 but then he has much more subtle lines which i prefer like at one point he describes cthulhu as having flabby claws and that's a really easy description to gloss over but i think it's relevant because claws are not flabby like yeah they're sharp claws, yeah they're hard they're sharp they kind of suggest like a predator but flabby is soft squishy kind of the opposite of a predator um but the the point is that these two you know this descriptor has been applied to something that seemingly it cannot be applied to it's it's two kind of paradoxical pieces of information being forced to occupy a single space and it's not dwelt on it's just a little detail in there um there's also like probably my favorite line in the entire story, one of my favorite lines by Lovecraft ever, is um, when Cthulhu first rises to its full height um, and begins to emerge from the city, Lovecraft writes, a mountain walked or stumbled. God. With an exclamation point. And I don't know what it is about that short little sentence, but it is just so evocative to me. 
it's it's just like it i don't i don't know what it evokes it's just for one thing you're kind of conflating the animate with the inanimate because cthulhu is clearly animate but you're making this comparison to a mountain yeah um, it's um it, it's like you said it, it's one of those simpler explanations like because you you can very plainly see you know it's a, a mountain that walks like you can kind mm-hmm. of visualize a mountain that you know you know want to be cartoony about it stands up and walks off but like Mm-hmm. It's just stepping back and thinking about that, like something the size of a mountain, and mm-hmm. now it's on the move. Yeah. Shit. Now well, what? Well, and I like walks or walked or stumbled because it implies that this thing is so weird and so alien and so incomprehensible that he doesn't really know how to interpret the way it's moving. You know. What constitutes normal walking for this thing? Is it stumbling, or is that just how it moves? You know, like, yeah, again, you have just to... a nice, subtle little detail. Yeah, it, it, it forces you to recontextualize for this incomprehensible beast. Yeah. Like, by comparison, in X-Men comics, Krakoa is the island who walks like a man. And that's a much cheesier, hokier way of conveying the same idea like lovecraft many years earlier had or you know that's a very sharp concise but also kind of deep image um just such a throwaway little bit of 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 writing but it really works there's also the fact that cthulhu is a simultaneously seeming all states of matter at once it's described as being solid liquid and gas at various points um, often very gelatinous and sticky. Yeah, I like how he describes Cthulhu as just like a, a, a sweaty, sweaty man beast, real sticky, a, real, a gamer. Yeah, real, he's a real, he's a real greasy boy rising out from his sunken city. I think they do. I think at one point it does say like Cthulhu greasily entered the water. Yeah, or something. yeah. <laughs> use use greasily as a descriptor, which is really weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the few moments of description in that section that takes me out of it a little bit. Also, Cthulhu is, like, simultaneously dead and alive. And I don't think you're meant to assume that Cthulhu is, like, undead or even just immortal. I think the idea is that, again, paradoxically, Cthulhu is dead and alive. Yeah, Cthulhu. Cthulhu is so old and so powerful that it has transcended the concepts of life and death. Exactly. It's it's a it's a creature that has moved beyond such earthly things as life or death. Like it's yeah. it's beyond every rule of nature. Yeah, um which again is one of the things that I think works so well conceptually about this story. Another thing that I think is important to keep in mind with Lovecraft, and um, this story was almost the start of it, was that Lovecraft was the the guy to really turn the focus of horror towards the sea. Um, you know, previously, gothic horror was really focused on spaces that humans could easily inhabit or had inhabited. Um, spooky castles, dark woods, graveyards, etc., but Lovecraft found the ocean frightening because it was so inaccessible to humans. And, you know, even now with vastly superior technology, there's still a ton of stuff we don't know about the ocean or marine life. It's just this 
vast, seemingly bottomless thing teeming with life we'll never really have access to. Yeah, we've only mapped somewhere between like five and ten. Last I read it was like 5% of the ocean, but that was years ago, so it could be closer to Mm -hmm. like six or seven. But there's still huge swaths of this planet that we haven't like Mm -hmm. been able to look into. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, he introduced a very different aesthetic for horror. And that might be one of my favorite things about Lovecraftian horror is that he made it fishy. Um, (laughs) You know. Yeah, I know that's a great way to describe it. Everything smells like rot, but like fishy rot. Everything is sticky or slimy. Cthulhu has an octopus head. What what to me one of the descriptions that stuck out to me that I hadn't really noticed initi- like previously was that when they're describing these kind of lesser beings that the cultists sometimes interact with, they're described as crawling out of like these deep pits in the ocean, and they're described as moldy. And again, conceptually, I love that image. Because it's so gross and so weird. You try to think of what moldy would be underwater. But I, I just love the idea, like, this is this wet thing, you know? Like, it's, it's, and, and again, it's like this, this balance between life and death. Where, like, to me, the fact that these creatures are moldy implies that they are corpse-like, but they're clearly not dead. Like, we have zombies are huge in, in horror today. They're they're rotting off the bone as they terrorize people, but they're not usually moldy. Like, that's just a very weird and, I think, like, quintessentially Lovecraft way of envisioning monsters, which I really appreciate. Now, there's some wonky science here. Sure is, man. Go ahead, tear it into it. There's the alignment of the stars where, like, for the one and only time, Lovecraft, like, gives credence to astrology. Um, Which, again, I think is, you know, it's not him saying that astrology is good. It's him saying, oh, the horror of this story is discovering that all of our scientific institutions were bullshit and it all breaks down. And we have to believe what all of these not white people believe. Which, like, (laughs) like, that that, that is one of the things that's very uncomfortable about reading the story as he... Like, he uses religions from non-white parts of the world as connecting points to the cult of Cthulhu, and, like, he explicitly ties people of color with all the evil in the universe, and Cthulhu specifically. Yeah, Um, yeah, there's a lot of, like, Eskimos and... Yeah. Um, Louisianans. he, he, (laughs) He talks a lot about African voodoo and stuff like that, so... A lot of um, old world devil worship, he mentions. But a weird recurring theme with his work is earthquakes heaving land masses, earthquakes or volcanoes heaving land masses up to the surface of the water, which I don't think is remotely possible. The only way we get, like, land out in the ocean nowadays is underwater volcanoes. Right, but they create new land. They don't throw sunken continents up to the surface. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Like, a, su- a tsunami yeah. 
a tsunami out that out in the Atlantic isn't gonna raise Atlantis. Probably, yeah. I don't know. Twenty twenty is weird. But Rilia is thrown to the surface by like volcanic activity and an earthquake. Dagon, which is a story we might talk about next time, is like proto Call of Cthulhu in many many ways. In that, a sailor stumbles upon a long-lost land that has been thrown to the surface by volcanic activity, and he discovers ancient stone monuments and fish people there. And he wrote that many years before Call of Cthulhu, and it very much feels like a test run to Call of Cthulhu. So, like, these were themes and ideas that fascinated him, but a lot of that science doesn't really make sense, for the most part. I mean, the story opens with kind of Lovecraft's whole thesis statement about the nature of the unknown. But here's the paragraph. That, again, this is almost like a thesis statement for Lovecraft. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us a little, but some day the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Oh God, yes, that that is great writing. Yeah, that's that's solid. Like, he almost kind of looks into the future with, like, different explorations. Of course, people are still exploring in the early, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. But, like, it still it calls into, like, exploring the ocean or, like, exploring mm-hmm. the stars or whatever. Like, yeah. If, like, basically what it says and what all weird fiction kind of boils into is that, like, eventually humanity's hubris is going to uncover something that we can't contend with. Yeah, I mean, and there's a reason why every protagonist of his I can think of, or most of them, are either scientists or, like, amateur intellectuals. Oh, and... yeah, like, I, I, I wanted to mention, like, everybody, every character in this in the Call of Cthulhu is noted as, noted, is a man of... Of some a man of some note in anthropology mm. or um, mm. or Semitic languages or uh, yeah or uh, geology other shit like that like it's all it's all literally learned men yeah well and even like the sculptor he is a renowned and extremely talented sculptor so like yeah it's, it's these all... are scientific men these are men with an appreciation for the arts and that is very deliberate because the story is about breaking everything they love basically yeah it's you're not sending uh some joe schmo like me in there you're sending you know, the guy who studies this for a living you're sending in mm-hmm. the, the the guy who made this his life's mission you're sending a guy who has a specific area of expertise that is about to be undermined by this swell of knowledge that forces them to revise everything and by the way um that's a continuing trend in in cosmic horror and weird fiction in general uh annihilation for instance um you haven't read the book but you have seen the movie and we will talk about it someday 
Um, Annihilation is about a group of scientists. Um, the main character is a biologist, and over the course of that story, she is forced to rethink everything she thought she knew about biology. Now, that story is a little different because it almost manages a bit of a positive spin on that. For Lovecraft, this was a wholly horrific uh, event. And a lot of his stories do emphasize frontiers, unexplored frontiers. So, like, the ocean routinely comes up as a source of horror. Um, space, like you mentioned, is treated similarly. But uh, At the Mountains of Madness takes place in the Antarctic, which was, at the time, largely unmapped and was still in the process of receiving expedi expeditions on a relatively frequent basis at the time. So, like... That was uncharted territory, and Lovecraft's, like, imagination was captured by the reports of this unknown land that were coming back from these expeditions. I mean, I, one thing that's interesting to note is Lovecraft actually had to revise At the Mountains of Madness between writing it and publishing it, because at the time of writing it, a prevailing theory in the scientific community was that Antarctica was actually two continents close together. And prior to the story's publication, an expedition confirmed that this was not the case. And so he went back and he revised it. But, like, huh. Antarctica was, like, kind of an, a frontier of, of exploration at the time. So, like, Lovecraft was obsessed with these, these zones and, and having, like, what happens when our scientific mastery is challenged. Yeah. And I'm glad that we know now that Antarctica is the ice shelf that holds all the water in on the flat Earth. That is true. Uh, Lovecraft would have loved that. Um, oh, one other little conceptual detail that I really like is that A, Cthulhu is dead, but also dreaming. Not asleep, dead and yeah. dreaming. I also like that Cthulhu specifically influences and communicates with people who are sensitive, namely artists, creatives, um, are more like susceptible to its influence. I think that's a neat idea. I like that, like, Cthulhu incepts these images into people's minds, and that's presumably how these idols come about, because the images are implanted in people's minds in their dreams. And then, I mean, the, the sculptor in his sleep creates the bas-relief. Yeah. Um, I, I think. So, yeah, he does. Like, Cthulhu kind of inadvertently bends people to its will and turns them into worshippers without them even really knowing that they're yes worshippers. yes and that's what i wanted to hit on actually it's one of the that's cool. one of the main things i wanted to hit on with uh the story is mm -hmm. the whole story like we said is it's very weird disjointed and it yeah. slowly comes together and one of the things that i appreciate now knowing the full story is of course through both manuscripts from uh angel and johansson it mentioned again and again how it always comes down to, like, these people die, and it comes down to one guy and one other guy. One guy goes crazy and dies, and the other guy lives to to perpetuate the myth, to, like, again, to mm -hmm. perpetuate the myth, well, lack of a better term, to you know, carry on the story, something like that. It's all... Mm. And, like, we watch it happen with uh, Angel's people, we watch it happen with Johansson's people, and it's implied that it happens with uh, uh, Thurston. The, the yes. actual uh, narrated main character. Which, by the way, this brings me back to the thing I told you yesterday I wanted to talk about. 
this is the one other positive point I will give to the, the narrative structure of the story. Thurston, or whatever his name is, ends the story by saying, because I know all of what I know, I imagine they'll be coming for me and killing me soon. I sure hope nobody else ever reads this. But because the story is framed as though you are reading his account of events, this leaves the reader to come to the conclusion that the cult will come for them next. Hell yeah. That's fucking... Oh, man. That... Honestly... Maybe maybe it it, it 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 feels like a style over substance kind of guy, which that's what Lovecraft was. But goddamn, that that is a solid framing device. Like that, it, yeah. It, it makes it, it almost makes the the, the story worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, most Lovecraft stories end on a similar note where it's like. The world didn't end today, but it will end someday, and hopefully, you don't live to see it. Um, this story has that, but it also has, again, this kind of implied caveat of, well, it doesn't matter because the cultists are going to come find you now anyway, which is an interesting little touch at the end of the story. Do you have any other thoughts before we, like, talk about, like, recommendations or anything? Um, no, that, that I don't think so, because the last thing I wanted to hit on was that, that framing device of, like, mm-hmm. it happened to me... I need to hide this, and and, and it, it all perpetuates, the, the way it all goes, it all perpetuates that, like, you know, no matter what we do, you know, Cthulhu mm. pulls the strings, uh, he will yeah. rise once again, like we said. It's because mm. nobody, everyone, everyone says they should destroy the, the research, but nobody actually destroys the research. Well, that is the fatal flaw with this format, I think, which is that if you didn't want anybody to know... Why the fuck did you write it down? <laughs> you didn't have to. Why would you not burn all of your uncle's notes? Like, come on, man. Like, you can end the cycle at some point. These people just keep holding on to their fucking earth-shattering revelations. For no reason. Like, you have no intention to publish it or give it to anybody. It's just like, you keep fucking doing it. But that's an easy nitpick to make. I still think, like... Again, this this story is, in my opinion, one of the weaker entries in the Cthulhu mythos, but there are moments where it shines, specifically the moments where Cthulhu has risen. I think are really gripping and really exciting and perfectly encapsulate what Lovecraft was going for. I do think Cthulhu was a little bit of a deviation from, like, the ideal Lovecraftian eldritch being, because, like... Lovecraft believed that aliens, like alien gods, should be so advanced that humans would be entirely beneath their notice. But in this story, like Cthulhu is dependent on humans. Now he he is bending them to his will in some way, but like it's made clear that Cthulhu cannot get out of its tomb unless people let it out. So I think it's it's not quite the perfect Lovecraftian entity. I personally think that goes to the color from Color Out of Space. But it's still conceptually a pretty good introduction to Lovecraft, if a bit of a slog to read. Uh, would you recommend this to other people, Dakota? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if 
people are fans of this specific literature, this this you know subgenre. Mm-hmm. Like obviously, if, if you're a, if you're a weird fiction fan, if you're if you're a cosmic horror fan, you, you gotta read some Lovecraft. I feel similarly. I'm like, I would not casually recommend this to like my mom, but I do think if you appreciate this kind of stuff, you gotta read it at some point. Don't feel too ashamed if you need the audiobook to get through it, because I do think it's a more accessible way to experience the story. But yeah, I I halfway recommend it. I think um, a lot of the ideas and the germs of later ideas that you can find here are very fascinating. But it's kind of front-loaded with the sloggy stuff. One thing I would also caution people who aren't very familiar with Lovecraft about is that... It's like Lovecraftian horror is called existential horror for a reason. It is not jump out of your seat scary. It is not like I'm scared of what will jump out of the shadows at me scary. It is a sense of dread that culminates in you closing the book and having to reconsider your place in the universe. You know, it's it's a different kind of fright. Yeah, it, it, there's 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 the virgin jump scare. And there's the Chad sit there in your study and re- and and rethink what you know about the universe. <laughs> but um, I believe it's a much more effective we, form of horror. I agree, and we just talked about that with the thing, didn't we? Yeah, we, we've mentioned this like a few times. Like that, that that's yeah. that, that's why I'm having a little trouble myself saying these things. We, we've already kind of covered like what makes us so attracted to like weird fiction cosmic horror all that kind of stuff yeah lovecraft stuff is not as much designed to scare you out like make you scream in the moment it's meant to stick in your head and linger and unsettle you um which yes we've talked about a lot in recent weeks so he's in our heads man uh, yeah it does this is it man Okay, um, I think that about wraps us up. Um, we might do a second episode on a few shorter short stories from Lovecraft next week. Uh, we kind of fucked up. We were we had four <laughs> episodes planned for Cthulhu Horror Show. It turns and then we out discovered that there were yeah yeah tur- five Thursdays this month. <laughs> yeah, it so... turns out there's there's five episodes in this Cthulhu Horror Show. Yeah. So we can barely remember yeah. the four we have. So <laughs> yeah, we kept forgetting the all of the ideas we had for these episodes. I, the thing was not one of our original ideas. I forget. Well, obviously, I forget what we what it replaced. But yeah, so we might do another Lovecraft episode. We might do something else. I have a feeling we'll probably do another Lovecraft episode. I don't know though. So. Yeah, uh, thanks for tuning in. Please leave a like, leave a review, share it around. Uh, Dakota, where can they find you on social media? Uh, you guys find me on Twitter uh, and Instagram if you care enough, at Dak Wrestleford. You'll know him because he looks like a cringy fuck. <laughs> thanks a lot, anyway, jackass. I'm... <laughs> where's where's <laughs> your Twitter I'm account, right. Brian, huh? Where's yours? I don't want people to know I'm a cringy fuck. Well, how, how are they going to let you know you're a cringy fuck if they can't contact you online? Bro, I look in the mirror all the time. I don't need their help. <laughs> you're experiencing existential cringe.
Oh my god, existential cringe. <laughs> Experiencing existential cringe with fail Cthulhu. <laughs> I'm Brian. And I'm Dakota. Something Cthulhu Fatagans. Vidglui Bogdan Cthulhu Brilliant and recording. <laughs> <laughs>